Welcome to Love Your Library, Hampshire Library's podcast. I'm Mary Stone with my co-host, Kate Price-McCarthy. Hello, Kate. Hi, Mary, and thanks to our supporter, BorrowBox, our library app that allows you to download ebooks and audiobooks straight to your phone or tablet. All you need is your library membership number and PIN. So, Mary, how's lockdown been for you the last few weeks? We've been missing seeing your face in the office. Oh, yeah. I mean, to be honest, it's been okay. You know, I've got a garden. I'm very, very lucky to have that. I've got all the technology here at my fingertips. So I've been able to do my job and there hasn't been much impact. But I know that lots of people have not been so lucky. Yeah, no, I do feel very lucky as well. Um, We've been doing lots of work here within the libraries, trying to make as many services possible uh, available to people while they're at home. Yes, exactly. If you want to find out about all the different things that the library are offering on our digital service, the best thing to do is just go online. Okay, so this episode, we're going to feature an interview with the Sunday Times bestseller, Louise Doughty. She of Apple Tree Yard fame. Yes, that's right. And then later in the podcast, we'll be talking to Anne from Fleet Library about The Wayward Girls, which is a book we downloaded from our Borrow Box collection. This episode's title is inspired by that chilling tale of a haunted house and by the subject matter of our guest author, Louise Doughty, as her latest book, Platform 7, has been described as a ghost story set at the unlikely location of Peterborough Station. Louise has an impressive track record. Her sixth novel, Whatever You Love, was shortlisted for the Costa Novel Award and longlisted for the Orange Prize for Fiction. Although she's probably best known for her hugely popular bestseller, Apple Tree Yard, which came out about seven years ago. Uh, You might remember the TV adaptation with Emily Watson a few years ago. It was quite a talking point at the time. Louise was great fun to talk to, despite some technical problems we had. In the end, we had to resort to recording Louise on her phone. So apologies for the quality of the sound. But first, we're going to start with a short reading from the book. I hear a shout from the direction of the old platforms and turn to see Dalmar across the tracks on platform five. At last, the man has his back to him, but Dalmar has spotted him and can see across the tracks that he is far closer to the edge of platform seven than anyone should be. Poor Dalmar, he is rooted to the spot. He is nearer the ramp than the stairs and must know there isn't time to race up and across the covered walkway and back down the ramp again before the approaching goods train comes in. He will have used his radio to put the call into Tom to get a block on the signals. But I can hear the thunder of the freight train getting louder and louder. It's a fast one, with a full load passing through. Who knows if the signal block will come in time, or if the driver will be able to break if it does. Tom's hands will be shaking as he makes the call. Doesn't this man realise what he's doing to them? Never mind his own family. In an act of desperation, Dalma puts both hands either side of his mouth and bellows. Hey, sir! Sir, you over there! The man does not turn round. Dalma waves his arms from side to side, miming the action of pushing the man away from the platform edge. He cups both hands around his mouth again and shouts once more, Hey, sir, over there! I hear the pant of desperation in his voice, the crack at the end of the phrase, and I imagine him, 
at the inquest, describing later how he yelled across the tracks, thinking it was the only way to get the man's attention, only to feel racked with guilt that it prompted the man's action. It didn't. I've seen three men come close to it now, their legs shaking and their teeth chattering, and seen them pull back at the last minute. This one is different. Beyond feeling, beyond thought. This one has decided. Thank you very much for joining us today. I'm going to start by asking you to tell us a bit about your latest book, Platform 7. Um, Normally, that's quite an easy task for an author, uh, but Platform 7, I don't think, doesn't very well neatly fit into an easy description. I think that's very true. Um, Platform 7 is a lot of things. I mean, my books get called thrillers, but I think Platform 7 is probably slightly unusual if you're going to put it in that category. It's actually narrated by a ghost. Uh, You find out very quickly by the end of the first chapter that the person who's telling you the story, a young woman's voice, is already dead. And she's died in mysterious circumstances on Peterborough Railway Station. Um, I am claiming it is the first, as far as I know, I'm the first person to set almost an entire novel on Peterborough Railway Station. <laughs> and it's it's Peterborough Railway Station as a purgatory, really. She's something many a commuter will probably remember. Um, she's died on the station and she's trapped there until the mystery of her death is solved. And in the early stages of the book, she's got an extra problem, as if that wasn't enough, which is she has no memory of who she was when she was alive. And at the very beginning of the book, she sees a man who comes onto the station at 4am to throw himself in front of a freight train. And this triggers something in her, and she feels absolutely certain that that's not what she did. She knows that she's died under unusual circumstances, but she's absolutely certain that she didn't commit suicide. So who is she and why did she die and why is she trapped there? And that's really the mystery I set up at the beginning of the book. Absolutely. And and as you say, Peter Station does at first seem to be an unlikely setting for a novel, but it does fit perfectly with the story and its themes. In fact, I, I couldn't resist exploring the area on Google Street View. And you can just about make out Platform 7. If you go onto Crescent Bridge, which overlooks the railway line, you can see Platform 7. So yeah, you've talked a little bit about the role of purgatory uh, that it plays in the novel, but it's both figuratively and as a setting. Um, so it, it's I, maybe if you could expand on that a little bit more about all the different characters that are there and the role as it plays more figuratively. Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked me that because I do think in many ways this book is a love letter to people who do the jobs that keep our lives running. And of course, that's it really important now but station staff and people who one minute are dealing with a customer's complaint about a sandwich the next minute they might be dealing with a real emergency someone under a train or a, a terrorism alert and the people who do those jobs i became incredibly fond of the real staff on Peterborough Railway Station. Um, got to know them quite well. It got to the point where when I stepped off the train to do my research, you know, several of them would go, oh, all right, Louise, how's the book going? Mm-hmm. Uh, I spent a lot of time there and I spent some nights there overnight, uh, becoming a bit of a ghost myself to see how the station operated when it was closed to the public, which was a fascinating experience. And as well as 
telling her own story, um, Nisha, the ghost, as she it turns out she's called, she also tells the story of the life and loves of people on the station. So there's Dalmar, who's a security guard, who's a refugee from Somalia. There's Melissa, the station manager. Um, there's Tom, the customer services manager. And then there's a young PC called Akash Lockhart, who's a PC in the British Transport Police um, at Peterborough. They have a little brick building right opposite the station. And he's a young man who figures out that there's something a bit fishy about Lisa's death and starts to investigate who she was and why she died on the station. So he becomes quite an important character as well. And I just had fantastic fun with hmm. this cast of characters and how they interweaved with Lisa's story. Yeah, and look, this is for me, uh, for my benefit only, this question, but it really reminded me, strangely enough, of an E.M. Forster novel, Howard's End. I don't know whether you've read it, but the way he... Oh, that's one of my favourite novels. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's really uh, creepy, you think that. <laughs> so did, well, the, 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 the way he talks about a railway station has always stuck with me. Um, and I always think of him when I when I look down at a railway station because he talks about them as being gates to the glorious and unknown and the way the arches of King's Cross Station are fit portals for some eternal adventure. So am I completely wide of the mark or was that in your head when you were you writing? Know, that is really interesting because it wasn't in my head consciously. Ah. I don't remember thinking that. But I have loved Howard End since I was a teenager and it's right up there in my top 10 favourite books. So I wonder if something did go in subliminally. Who knows? Who knows? Yes. Oh, I like that, the idea. Um, now, one of the things you've said about this book is it it's about what we leave behind when we die and how we survive in the hearts of people who love us. And I yeah. found that a really a kind of wholly convincing and a totally moving element of the book. So is that a theme you were really keen to explore? Yes, very much so. Um, I think it's interesting that, I mean, there are scenes in this novel where Lisa's parents and her friends are grieving for her. Um, they've lost her. She's only 36 when she dies. And it occurred to me really uh, towards the end of writing the novel that I was writing it in the wake of losing my own parents. Um, I grew up in a small town in East Midlands. I live in London now. I've passed through Peterborough Railway Station many, many times. I've been stuck there on a cold winter night on the way to visit my parents. And I'd always said, I'd always had a standing joke that when my parents were gone and would sell the house, that I would never change trains on Peterborough Railway Station again. I'd only go straight through it. And then what did I do? You know, I chose to write a whole novel set there. So what was going on there? And I think if you like, the running theme of this book is how we live on after we've gone in the hearts of people who love us. And also about all the different sorts of loves that make up the great web of our lives. You know, there's a huge emphasis, particularly for young women, on romantic love as, you know, the answer, uh, the way in which you'll find happiness. But in actual fact, romantic love is only a tiny part of most people's lives. Um, there's all sorts of other loves that we have for our parents and our children, you know, other relatives, um, and uh, love for our colleagues at work, the kind of camaraderie and friendship that many people find at work. And so I was interested in exploring that, the kind of great web of love that makes up our lives. Um, somebody did say in one of the reviews um, for a novel that has quite a lot of death in it, it was really about love. It pleased me because I, I think that's what this book is about at the end of the day. 
Absolutely, yes. Although uh, one of the other themes in the book is obviously coercive control. And what made you want to write about that? I suppose one of the most important lines uh, in the book is when Lisa says, I'm not ruling out romantic love. I just wish I'd kept more of a sense of proportion. And what I was interested in exploring is the ways in which there is so much pressure on young women I mean, I have young adult daughters and I can still remember what it's like to be that age myself. There is still so much pressure on young women to kind of find the one, the romantic dream. You know, this kind of the story that we get fed in you know, films and books and romantic culture in a way that I think can be very damaging for women. Because I think if you do any sort of research into coercive control or if heaven forbid you've experienced it yourself, what is incredibly common is that men who become controlling often present as highly romantic in the early days of the relationship. You know, they're the ones who seem completely obsessed with you, who turn up with flowers, who want to surprise you all the time. And a lot of those romantic tropes are actually warning bells for relationships that can become quite toxic mm. and quite controlling. And about a third of the way into Platform 7, we go back into Lisa's past and we find out the events that led up to her death. And I was very interested in exploring a relationship where there's uh, very little or no, no physical violence, but an awful lot of gaslighting and manipulation and the ways in which those psychological controlling techniques can be every bit as destructive as physical violence. Um, you know, not all violence leads to bruise, as the famous phrase goes. And, you know, we do now have a greatly improved understanding of coercive control um, and how, in fact, it can be a huge indicator towards eventual domestic homicide as much as a history of physical violence. But it's a very serious subject and it's something that's ripe for exploration in fiction, I think. Yeah, I think anyone reading this book might feel as I do, but uh, you know, there. But for the grace of God, go I. It's it's so insidious his uh, his manipulation and behaviour. Yes, and of course, for a novelist, it's such rich territory because when you're writing a novel, you have three or four hundred pages to explore the detail of a relationship. So the idea is that as you learn more about Lisa's boyfriend, Matty, is a growing sense of unease. Um, it's little things to start off with, and then it gets more and more insidious, as you say. And I wanted the reader to share this idea that Lisa herself feels a degree of unease quite early on, but she ignores her own best instincts because there is so much pressure on her um, to find a boyfriend, to have a baby, to do all those things that women are supposed to do in their 30s. And she doesn't really listen to the warning bells that go off in her head um, with devastating results. Absolutely. Another repeating theme throughout is the responsibility different characters feel that they have to step in to help others to get involved and also the guilt they felt when they didn't take action. Uh, do you think that's also an important part of the book? Yes, it is, really. I suppose that's related to the idea that it's a book about the web of love that forms our lives. It's also about the web of responsibility that we all have. And there's an important incident in the book where an elderly couple seeing something that makes them uneasy and reporting it to the police. 
actually lead eventually to action being taken because they're reporting a very small, seemingly insignificant incident goes on the records, that record is seen when something else is investigated, the links are made, and then eventually action is taken. And you're absolutely right. I think that is an important theme for the book, the ways in which we can all help each other by stepping in mm. when something maybe quite small and insignificant happens, but you know in your heart of hearts that it's probably part of a larger picture. Absolutely. Um, I understand you studied creative writing at the University of East Anglia, which is, you know, such a world-renowned course, and you've since set up a scholarship there. What did you learn from the course and what would you pass on to anyone who's keen to write their first novel? Well, I did the course when I was very young. Um, I think I was 22 or 23. I didn't think I was young, of course. I thought I knew it all. And looking back on it now, I was actually very emotionally and intellectually immature. But I still learned something incredibly important, which is when it comes to writing a novel, there are no shortcuts. And I had written a novel before I went on the course, which was embarrassingly bad, um, <laughs> I can tell you quite categorically. I wrote another in my mid-twenties after I'd finished the course, and it was actually only my third novel that got finally got published, um, Crazy Pagan, which was published in 1995, 25 years ago, in fact, this year. And um, that was actually the third one I wrote, not counting numerous short stories, false starts, ideas that have been abandoned. And there's really no quick way of doing it because writing is one of these things where you just learn on the job. Um, I do believe that almost every writer has a huge amount of kind of bad prose that they have to get out of their system <laughs> before they can write the good prose. You know, the only way you learn is by doing it. Um, it's an activity, not a passivity, as one writer yeah. once said to me. And you've just got to sit down, you've just got to do it day in, day out, and teach yourself how to do it well. In fact, I first came across you in your very successful newspaper column a few years ago called A Novel in a Year, which was then published as a book. And I'd highly recommend it if you're stuck in a rut with your novel or just interested in creative writing. And I believe the first writing exercise you set readers of the column was to finish the sentence that starts, the day after my eighth birthday, my father told me. Could you tell us a bit, yes. of, <laughs> could you tell us a bit about, about the response you had from readers? I did. I had thousands and thousands of readers wrote in, sackloads of posts. It was back in the very early days of online interactive columns and message boards as they used to be called back then and I think I almost crashed the Telegraph website actually, I think it's a bit like the China Syndrome in any sort of <laughs> column um, and the newspaper was actually astonished at the result although uh, I was less astonished having known how many people watched about the book and what was fascinating was the ways in which people finished that sentence um, the day after my eighth birthday, my father told me, you know, and people came out with that he was leaving or that he'd never loved me. Um, I loved the one which said the day after my eighth birthday, my father told me why it had slipped his mind. You know, <laughs> what an intriguing opening. Um, and I think if you start, it, it sounds very obvious advice, but I think with novel writing, you can't state the obvious too many times. Novels start with one sentence. 
And I had a great time of just getting in there, just getting into the story. You know, you have a situation, you have a person, maybe a person in a position of peril, and you you follow the line of the story. Um, who is it? The famous artist who said drawing is taking a line for a walk. Hmm. Um, was it Juan Moreau? It's slipped my mind who actually said that. I should um, know, and I don't. <laughs> um, but it's the same with a story. You know, if you're struggling, just open with a, a person doing something, a character doing something. Open with them packing their bags and leaving home for good. And then you're going to have to write 300 pages to work out why and what's happened. <laughs> Take your story for a walk. Follow the line. Exactly. I really love this book, as you can probably tell from the interview. I found it really moving. Yeah, it's a book that I can't wait to read myself, actually. Okay, so the next section of the podcast for which we're joined by a member of the library team to talk about The Wayward Girls, the debut novel of author Amanda Mason. Let's hear what we all had to say about this novel. Joining us for this segment of the podcast is Anne, one of the team at Fleet Library. Welcome to the Hampshire Libraries podcast, Anne. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's really great to have you with us for a bit of library expertise. And I do, I mean, I feel for you, you must be really missing your regulars at Fleet Library. Yes, yes. It's been strange times. Um, We've been really trying to connect with everybody on social media. And that's been one of the things that I've been trying to work on from home. So we've been uploading posts to Facebook and Twitter, trying to sort of reach out to our customer base and also we've been really trying to promote BorrowBox. You started using BorrowBox for the first time quite recently Anne is that right? I did download an audiobook uh, some time ago actually when I was on holiday last year. This was the first time I'd actually downloaded a book to read on my phone and many customers indicate that they wouldn't like to do that because they think it's too small and too difficult. Um, so I thought it'd be quite interesting to have a go myself. And, and actually, I was pleasantly surprised. It was it was really straightforward, really simple, and actually really easy to read, even though the phone is comparatively small, you know, to, to a laptop or, you know, an iPad or another device. Yeah, I quite often end up using my phone to read books because you don't have to worry about having the light on in when it's dark to read it, which is a, a definite advantage. I think all sorts of people now are turning to BorrowBox who haven't previously. In fact, my, my partner was uh, listening to an audio book I was playing of um, Elton John's autobiography. And he was so gripped, he was saying, where did you get that from? I want it. So I said, well, BorrowBox, of course. And he's finally using BorrowBox, even though I've been uh, trying to persuade him to do so for years. Yeah, I'm definitely a convert. So, The thing that I tend to use it mostly for is audiobooks. I'm a real convert because I started listening to more and more podcasts. So the natural steps seem to be going into audiobooks and now I borrow them all the time. Okay, on to the book itself. Anne, could you tell us a bit about it? Okay, well, The Wayward Girls was, was the book in question and um, it's a tale of sisters and deception, uh, rejection and loss. And it actually straddles two time frames. In 1976, Lou and her sister B are at the centre of suspected paranormal activity at their family farm. Alleged strange events spark the interest of a local photographer and would-be reporter called Izzy, and she then enlists the help of specialist investigators to find out more. Then we fast forward to the present day, and Lou, who is now known as Lucy, is called to visit her ageing mother in a care home after she's had a fall. 
Lucy then discovers that her mother has been contacted by a new group of supernatural researchers who are trying to establish the real truth about what happened back in the 70s. Lucy's understandably uneasy about revisiting the past, but she reluctantly agrees to meet with the group on her mother's behalf, but with certain caveats. Predominantly, the book's set close to the Yorkshire Moors, which is rather ethereal, and this thriller is a real page-turner, and you're drawn in from the start. If you like a good old-fashioned ghost story, you won't be disappointed by this book. So, Anne, tell us, is this the kind of book you'd normally read? Yeah, I've done. I've read quite a lot of um, this genre of fiction, but they tend to be um, historical ones. Um, so I've done, you know, Kate Moss and Laura Purcell, you know, the historical ghost stories. Um, so to read something present day was actually quite refreshing. I, I really enjoyed it. I found it quite relatable as well. And I get, I get the sense from this, that Anne, that you, you did really enjoy it. Yeah, I did. I could really relate to Lou, the main character of Lucy, as you know, she she switches between the two. I'm actually the same age as her, which is quite bizarre. Um, and I actually remember 1976 quite well. And I, I loved the way it went between the two time eras. I thought that was very well done. Yeah, I find I really connected with, with the main character, Lou. And I felt maybe it was because I'm same, the same age as well. But Mary, you didn't feel such a connection. I wonder if that's because you're a bit younger than us. I don't know. It's strange. I just, it took, I, I won't lie, it did take me a bit of time to get into this. I listened to the audio version read by Kristen Atherton and she had a fantastic voice. But the book itself, it took a couple of chapters before I felt properly hooked. Um, and I put it down a little bit to, down to the character of Lucy. I, there's this idea that she's trying to maybe create a distance between her and her past. And mm. maybe there's she's wanting to emotionally disconnect from the events that take place in the novel. But as a result, I felt that she was a little bit distant to me as the reader. She is sort of putting up some barriers and putting up some, uh, you wonder what secrets there are that are, that are being hidden by her or by other characters, and that may, might have caused it. I absolutely loved it, uh, and I wouldn't have picked it up because I don't tend to go. I'd never normally go for a ghost story or a gothic fiction, and I think it was described as gothic fiction on the cover, so that would have put me off. I, was, I would have also been put off, actually, by the title of it, the Wayward Girls, which sounded to me a bit like kind of historical romantic heartbreaker, which it definitely wasn't. To me, this felt much more of a sort of psychological mystery with hidden secrets to be exposed, which is absolutely my cup of tea. It sounds a bit like a Catherine Cookson novel. It does. Yes, nothing wrong with Catherine Cookson, of course, but it isn't, the, obviously the book isn't like that at all. I could really relate to Lucy. You know, her mother's in the home and again, I could relate to that, having experienced that myself as well with my father. He was in a home and he had dementia. And I think that covered some quite interesting areas that were quite close to my heart. So, you know, I, I felt they were well handled from that perspective. Absolutely true. And I did love, yeah, that summer of 76, for those of us who are around who remember it, it was such such an impact that year, the weather and, uh, and so on. Yeah, and I think that, that definitely did resonate with me. Yeah, I felt that, that that summer went on forever. And <laughs> I think I've still got a sticker that I had that uh, was of a car and it said, um, I'm saving water, I'm dirty, you know, the car. And uh, <laughs> it was quite funny. I'd, I've still got it somewhere. 
<laughs> Did you think that was quite an unusual thing to do? Because so many ghost stories are set during the winter or there's a sense of things being cold, you know, chilly, chilling novel, chilling atmosphere. But this was really hot and humid. It added a, a certain ambiance. I think, well, certainly remembering it was just nobody knew what to do with themselves. And, you know, you kind of just sat there waiting for the days to go by. And, you know, to sort of have something like that going on in the background was almost sort of it added a certain atmosphere to it, I think. Yeah, there is a definite sense, well, perhaps I will go on to talk about it a bit more, but a sense of feeling trapped and claustrophobia and that heat um, would have get, definitely sort of built up the tension and the people being bad tempered and mm. and so on, that sort of feeling. And I do, I, I've, I've read that the author really likes the idea of horror in plain sight. So it isn't the normal sort of windswept moors and dark faces at windows. It's, it's there in the heat and in your home life, which mm. is even more scary somehow. Mm. Did you actually find it quite scary as a novel? So no, I don't think it necessarily frightened me. It certainly had suspense, I feel. One of the things I really liked about it was the way that she had this kind of doubling sense. I don't know, maybe it was my imagination, but there seemed to be these echoes and mirroring um, so that there are two girls... Um, one, the two of the characters are called Lou. It's one, uh, the female character in the beginning in the seventies, short for for Lucy or Lucia, and then later in the present time period, one of the men is Lewis, shortened to Lou, so spelt differently but the same pronunciation. And there are two different sets of researchers, and you could also say there are two different places where hauntings were ha- were happening, in the farmhouse and then in. the potentially in the care home as well. So what do you think, Anne? Do you think she was doing this on purpose? Yeah, I think she was. And I think it was quite clever because, again, it it linked the two timeframes. And I must admit, initially, I did get a bit confused because, you know, it's quite definite when you're going through the chapters which time period you're in. Uh, but I did sort of have to think, oh, hang on, which time frame am I in? Because the names were similar. And But, but once I got into it and then I realised who they all were, I thought it was very clever how, how the author had done that. Yes, a very deft hand at doing that, I felt. I felt a real sense of some of the author's other influences. Because it, isn't it set near Whitby, where Dracula, parts of Dracula yes, are set? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. yeah, and then you know that, that the idea of the two girls, and then we, you know harks back to you know things like the Cottingley fairy hoax or the American mediums, the Fox Sisters. You really get an idea that this fits inside that history of other novels and real experiences. Oh, and also that all the technical parts. I, I quite like that actually. That was one of my favourite parts of this novel. Were some of the chapters in the modern time when we had the researchers and investigators using their camera equipment and it really made you think of films such as uh, The Quiet Ones and Grave Encounters um, and even things like, like I think you mentioned this earlier Kate oh, like yeah. Britain's Most Haunted and all those TV programs. Mm. One of the things I really like was the idea of this the marble a children's toy of the marble which is just goes is threaded through the story because I think she was quite thoughtful about this because a marble is a kind of toy that you would have as a child in the Victorian times in the 1970s or now so it's uh it's simple it's universal and so you know there's something that which could belong to any of the inhabitants of the house past or present so I thought that was a really clever use of marble and of course they could be used in quite a scary way a marble is a nasty hard 
little rock of glass to throw at somebody if you wish to. So they're a bit threatening too. I was just going to talk a little bit more about the farmhouse, that idea of um, being in a remote location and sense of claustrophobia. I don't know, um, Anne, if you thought that came across quite well. Yes, yeah, I did. And, you know, again, I think the heat probably added to that because, you know, if you're in a cramped space, dark space, you know, it would feel quite claustrophobic, as you say. And, and I did get the sense that they were stuck there and they were also kind of socially outcast from, from the village, weren't they? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I really love that sense of them really not being able to get away from this eerie experience that they were having. Yes, they were trapped in the house or they were trapped in the village. And yeah, with that heat and so on, it really was quite, quite claustrophobic. I was really interested to see that the author based the farmhouse on a, on a friend's farmhouse she knew when she was a child. And this family friend of hers had this very arty, creative setup that the family have, with the father being the artist and the mother being, I don't know, she trained as an artist as well. It's kind of bohemian, relaxed lifestyle. But her friend's family, that was real. Whereas in this family, they're trying to achieve this. The mother is trying to make it this really creative, homeschooled, artistic family home. And actually, the truth is very far from that. It's very fractured and very fearful with these, with this awful haunting, whatever it is that's going on behind it. So I really enjoyed that, that idea of this perfect, creative, happy family towards what the truth was underneath it all. And, and I thought it was interesting the way, you know, they weren't allowed to go in the barn. And then, yes. obviously, you know, that becomes quite a focal point. Yeah. First of all, it was where the father worked. But then you felt it's more than that. Why is everyone not allowed to go in the barn? Like one of those real Hollywood horror stories where whatever you do, don't go in the barn. There's always got to be somewhere secret and cut off that you're not allowed in. It's quite a classic thing that you find in most horror stories, isn't it? And you know that's where there's bad things will happen. Uh, I would have said... Um, my possible only criticism of the book, which I did love, and I would very happily read anything by, written by this author in future, um, was I was very slightly frustrated by the end. I think she was it kind of felt a little bit rushed compared with the rest of the book. But I'd be interested to, to know what you two thought about it. Uh, Anne, how about you? To me, in a way, I felt it dragged out a bit at the end. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly, I sort of thought, where, you know, are we going to get to what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And, and, and I felt it did keep jumping back and forth a lot towards the end. Um, so for me, it was almost the opposite. I'm with you there, Anna. I was just eager to get to the sort of twist of the final revelation. And it felt like it was dragged out a little bit more than it needed to be. Also, I kind of found it a little bit unsatisfying. I was left with some unanswered questions. Me too. Mm. Yes, but yeah. that didn't spoil the enjoyment of the book for me. No, no, that's true. It doesn't. It doesn't. Yeah. I did think as well through the book, it was quite interesting. There were other little sort of incidents that took place and, and you kept thinking, oh, is is this going to be where we're going? And it didn't. They were almost like red herrings that got yeah. thrown in. Yeah, and I was finally going to say um, that it was uh, it was a great choice for me as I'd have never picked it up and I found it really compelling. Yeah, and I'd never heard of it before either, so I, I was uh, pleased to be introduced to it. Thanks to Anne from Fleet Library. We'll be hearing from another member of the library in next month's podcast. There's a new selection of books on BorrowBox this month, which an unlimited number of people can borrow at the same time. 
Once again, there's more than a dozen unlimited new titles, what we refer to as No Wait, No Fuss books. You'll find the full list on our podcast notes, but we'll just mention a few here to whet your appetite. A few crime and mystery stories this month, um, including Macbeth by Joe Nesbo and The Quiet Side of Passion by Alexander McCall-Smith. Actually, I've just downloaded Macbeth. It looks really interesting. I hadn't realised, but it's a modern retelling of the Shakespeare play. And I've just read Anne Tyler's Vinegar Girl, which was a retelling of uh, Taming of the Shrew. So I'm really interested to see there's another in this this series of, uh, of retellings. It would be fantastic if any of our listeners read these books to share their thoughts and comments um, with us as well. We'd love to hear what you have to say. I also really like the look of the book Letters to My Younger Self, which I haven't come across before. It's a collection of 100 letters written by people like Paul McCartney, Olivia Colman, Mo Farah and Michael Palin. It's been put together by the Big Issue magazine and it's packed full of advice they'd have given their younger selves. So some really inspiring stuff. As always, one of the featured titles for May is also our virtual book club choice. You'll find links to this online reading group, which we call Digital Readers, on the Hampshire Library's Facebook page. This month, it's The Last Mile by David Badalci, the second book in his American crime series featuring footballer turned detective turned investigator Amos Decker. So download that book and join the conversation through our Hampshire Libraries Facebook group. And don't forget, there's a calendar of different library activities available through our Facebook page, as well as a host of other online resources to download for free. And thanks again to our supporter, BorrowBox, our library app that allows you to download ebooks and audiobooks straight to your phone or tablet. All you need is your library membership number and PIN. You'll find all the details on our website. And remember, while our buildings may be closed, we are always open online. I'm Mary Stone. And I'm Kate Price-McCarthy. <laughs>